how is everyone doing today? Excellent. Do you like our seating position? What was the word, Steve? What? Consummate V's, otherwise known as the chevron pattern. Or the, or the flying V from Mighty, the flying v from Mighty Ducks, exactly, exactly. Um, I want to start this morning by telling you a, a bit of a story that happened to me. Uh, there's a life lesson in here somewhere. Um, story that happened to me when I was a teenager. <clears throat> this is so, so it's about you know 2014, 2015. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Called out on it. Late 90s. Okay, late 90s. Sort of around the time of uh, Discman's and auto-tuned boy bands. Manufactured auto-tuned boy bands. So cool. As if. Public service announcement. Don't use or listen to either of those things, all right? Um, so, uh, some of you might find this really hard to believe, but I was a little bit of a skater punk in high school and in, in my teenage years. Um, one afternoon, I was with three of my other little skatey friends, and we wanted to get to this skate park. And on between us and this skate park was this main drag into and out of our hometown. So it's it was a four lane highway, about eighty kilometres an hour. Two lanes going that way, and two lanes going that way. And the only thing separating these two intense lanes of traffic, the buses and trucks and you know cars and just everything was these two thin, solid lines. Only thing that stopped these two forces. So, we want to get to our park. Four lanes of 80 kilometer an hour, chockers traffic. How do we do this? We, all of us, we grew up sort of post the Atari era, so none of us were really that good at Frogger, if you understand the game. So, it was pretty much pick a sort of break in the traffic and run for it. Now, two of my friends were into skateboards and um, they're, let's just, to protect the names of the innocent, let's just call them, like, let's just call these guys Tony Hawk and Ben Majera, okay? <laughs> they're, a, they're the skateboard dudes. Myself and another mate, we were into rollerblades, so laugh away. Um, but... Nolsey's with me. Yeah. Mad respect. Rollerblades. So the, my two skateboarding mates, they thought that they could just run for it. They thought they were just going to cross the road by themselves. Whereas myself and my other mate, we had um, our, our wheels strapped to our feet and we weren't that confident in getting across these four lanes of traffic. So I, sh I forgot to mention, there was a sign where we were about to cross saying Refuge Island, 100 metres that way further up the road. So myself and my mate, that we have our wheels strapped to our feet, we thought, okay, we're going to go to the Refuge Island. The Refuge Island is a raised traffic island in the middle of these four lanes of traffic. Okay, it's got barriers and everything all around it. You only have to cross two, then you're safe. And then you cross another two, and then you're safe on the other side. So we thought, right, we're going to go that way. You two guys, if you want to make a run for it, you, you do your own thing. So we started walking towards this skating towards this refuge island and we hadn't gone far and we heard this crack and a crunch and we turned back look around sort of expecting to see Tony or Bam as a bit of like mints underneath a truck or something and half, half hanging out but we saw thankfully we saw our two mates sort of perched precariously very timid white on this 
double white line sort of between these lanes of traffic. Anyway, what had actually happened was they had got to the road safely, but one of the skateboards had been stuck out just a little bit and had caught, a truck had caught it, had dragged it into the traffic and, well, splinters. So we were pretty glad to be taking the refuge island route that time. And then when we got to the other side, we sort of laughed it off really kind of nervously, like, oh, you know, well, that was close. Almost died. <laughs> so lesson learned that day, though. It's, it's a dangerous and it's a really scary place being between two opposing forces, isn't it? It's hard not to get dragged into one force or the other. It's hard not to. So keep that idea in your minds as we, as we expand this morning and we'll harken back to it later on. It might make a bit more sense. So as you're probably aware, um, today we're still in our mega series. Um, this is... Well, last week we, we completed our we completed a full book. Adrian took us through a great um, journey through understanding pain in light of and, and the way God views it and the way we can understand and we can be drawn into a trust of God around that through the book of Job. But up until from, from the start of the mega series, when did we start? In January or something, I think. From the start of the mega series up until two weeks ago, we've been in Genesis. So spent nine months in one book. So we're well on as I said on Facebook, what are we, we're well on the way to being finished by 2040, 2046 or something? 2047. What's the numbers, Rick? <laughs> yeah, it's too long. But how great is it, though? It's a mega series indeed, and we can spend this amount of time in understanding God's Word because it is so deep for us. So to recap, and well, let's actually just set some scene for the start of Exodus. This is where we're starting today. We'll set the scene a little bit. What does Exodus look like? So we've left Genesis behind. This guy, Jacob, has come down here with his sons, all his extended family. He's come down to Egypt, um, escaping famine, to live in Egypt um, because of the provision made by one of his sons, Joseph. So down comes this extended family of about 70 people. And then we pick up again at the start of Exodus. We see this family has done such a good job of being rabbits that they're now a great nation. Let's read um, verse, let's go to verse 7 of chapter 1 of Exodus. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So God here, he's, he's brought his people in sort of, to use an interesting kind of analogy, Egypt's kind of like a mother's womb. We've talked a lot about babies and pregnancy and stuff today. So let's stick with this analogy. Um, Egypt for the, for the Israelites is like this fertile and safe and nurturing place where they can grow from like this teeny tiny cell kind of family into this large healthy people group ready to you know, be birthed out into their own, um, their own land and live for themselves. However, however, verse 8 there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
So we see the memory of Joseph has faded out from the pharaohs. Okay, And the pharaohs, under this perceived threat of this growing foreign body of other people in their country, um, they decide to, sub- well, Pharaoh decides to subdue them and to keep them oppressed and beaten down. All right, He sets up this nationwide state-sanctioned slavery of an entire people group. He sets up work camps, slave drivers over them to build, this, the, to build Egypt's national infrastructure so that the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're kept tired and they're kept broken down. They've got no strength at all to fight anybody if you know, the Hittites or whoever Egypt's enemies were at the time come along to fight to ally with them. But, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread abroad. abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. I love this because it's shown over the history of time, like this is our first instance of it, but then further on we see um, in, in the Bible and just in, in, um, in just world history, we see that the, the further, like God's people grow further and they grow faster, the more that they're oppressed and the more they're pushed down. This is our first instance of it. Second instance of it is probably, you know, when you look at the, the early church under Rome and all the oppression from Nero and, and emperors and stuff like that how much it spread like wildfire. Modern day examples, you look to the church in um, you know, China and North Korea and Iran and places like this where things are just going bananas because they're so oppressed. So God's blessing on his people here shows up in this supernatural thriving out of the, in, in the face of this severe persecution. But Pharaoh sees that this slavery isn't knocking them back enough. Like the people are still growing. So he ramps up this cruelty to 11 on the dial, okay? And he commands these special, like these Hebrew midwives, only two are mentioned, Shifra and Pua, okay? He, he commands them to start killing Hebrew baby boys when they're born. So his idea is I'm going to weed out the males and the females can be left alive for whatever, slavery, different things. That's his idea. It's disgusting, all right. And in, in just in oh, just in light of even what's happened this week, okay. Like Ruth, Ruth mentioned it, and I'm sure a lot of us have been saddened to hear about our state's bill getting passed on abortion just just this last week. So, in light of that, I want to just sit in this situation, what it was like for the Israelites for a little bit, and the predicament that they're in, because sometimes. We need, um, like, sometimes we need like a modern light to be shone to um, to help us understand a situation a bit better. Like, we, we sometimes we read the Bible and it's so it seems so distant and so far away. It's so long ago, and our mind can't really make the our minds can't really bridge the gap. So, this modern modern day equivalent um, that I'm going to use, I hope, sort of helps us understand. We're all aware of the um, the one pile ch- one pile policy, one child policy. Thanks, Gabe. Keep me honest. The one child policy that China had. We're all familiar with that. Started in 1979, and um, it was basically a policy. I know there were exceptions to the rule, but um, on the whole, it set that each family in China could only have one child, only have one child. Okay. And I was reading an article by um, the Spectator magazine, which is a UK-based magazine, through the week, and it it explores the um, 
it explored the harmful effects that this whole idea had on China and then the way that the Chinese culture sort of grew this lack of value of human life. So I'm going to read a little bit out of the Spectator magazine article and I hope you understand where, I'm, where it's coming from. It says, statistics tell a somber story. In just over 40 years since the one-child policy was implemented, the birth rate has gone down in China by 400 million. By 2020 to 2025, there will be three, sorry, there will be 30 million more men than women. Unwanted, female or otherwise inferior babies are still strangled or drowned at birth by their own mothers, according to ancestral custom and unchanging rule of thumb, where infanticide has been the standard practice. Just another woman's task and part of good housekeeping skills. What? What? Killing your baby, part of good housekeeping skills? Now, I know all of us, like just by looking at some of, the, some of your faces, you find the thought of that abhorrent. But as this Spectator article, it, it points out, when a nation's culture is commanded into this and this becomes like the normal and this is, becomes the sold story long enough, then throwing your baby away into a bucket of water or strangling it just become another housekeeping task, like doing the dishes or throwing away the trash or whatever. So this... This has only happened, this is like 40 years that China's been doing this. You extrapolate this to what was happening probably for, you know, 80, maybe 100 years in Egypt. And this is the culture that how worthless Israelite babies were at the time. So, this is, so in Egypt, there is state-sanctioned slavery for the Egyptian, sorry, for the Israelite people. And then there is state-sanctioned infanticide or baby killing. Verse 22. Then it gets worse because then Pharaoh commands all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So in Egypt, it's not only commanded, sorry, it's not only expected, but it's commanded that if you see a little Israelite baby boy, you're to chuck him in the river and make sure he drowns. So think of, the, think of how dark this is. For the Israelites at the time, all right. You think of the fear of being an Israelite mum, you know, having your your baby boy crying and being found out, or think about how many mothers, like how many Hebrew mummies, had their little baby boys ripped from their arms and thrown into the river. Just man, words just can't express how how horrifying this is for for God's people at this time. It's an incredibly dark dark period, the start of Exodus. It's horrific. Yet, yet into this incredibly, incredibly dark time, this is, this is an incredibly dark setting, we meet our person that we're going to meet God Almighty through this morning, okay? He's the baby in the bulrushes. He's the Sunday school story favorite. Moses. Moses, I'm just going to get a drink and I'm going to read Little bit. Open to chapter two. And we'll start reading now. So, here's a little glimmer of light coming into this dark story. Chapter two, we see a man. This is Moses' dad from the house of Levi. He went and took as his wife a Levite woman, which is Moses' mum. And we all know that when a man loves a woman, what happens? <laughs> Verse two, the woman conceived. 
and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Okay? Now, you can understand this as parents, like that you want to protect your child, like you've got that urge to, you know, what, no matter if he's a boy or girl, you know, whatever, we're going to keep him, we're going to protect him. We, like, despite who wants to kill him, he's beautiful. But I'm sure, I'm sure they had that sick feeling when they realized that he's a boy. Oh. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to be found out? Is he going to, like, how long is he going to live? You know, these sorts of things. Was their, ba- was their house just going to be broken into one night and their baby stolen and thrown into the river like a piece of slave trash? That was decreed by Pharaoh. What was going to happen? But anyway, they, look, we're going to protect our child as we do as, as parents. So they hid him for three months. And now, then maybe his cry is just getting too loud or maybe there's, you know, government officials raiding the place sort of where they live or whatever. But then Moses' mum, she just likes to do this, this crazy, crazy sort of step of faith where she makes this basket um, and waterproofs it and puts him puts little baby Moses into the river where so many of his generation have been drowned in an effort to keep him alive. So she's kind of doing what she's meant to be told, like what she's sort of told to do, you know, put the baby in the river. Okay, but he's going to be in a waterproof boat. Anyway, and we see this story unfold, like he's, his brave sister Miriam, then she stands off. She's watching over him with bated breath and she sees Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter come down and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and she's moved with pity for him and she feels sorry for this little guy and, she's, and then Miriam rushes in. She's like, can I help you? You know, can, can we find someone to, um, to look after the baby for you? And she's like, yeah, that'd be great. So out of this crazy, dark, horrible situation, we see this little Israelite, baby boy brought up under the protective influence of Pharaoh's daughter by his own mum. <laughs> what a crazy turn of events. Thank you. Thank you, God, for his protective hand there. So that's Moses' birth. And then our other um, sort of way that we understand the Moses story is through the speech that Stephen gives before he's stoned. Remember in Acts? He goes through this big run of the, the, the Old Testament patriarchs and things, and he and he pulls out Moses, and he says that Moses in in Acts seven twenty two. Don't turn to it. It says Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his word and deed. Moses has been brought into Pharaoh's house here, and he's learning all the rad stuff that the Egyptians, the world superpower at the time, you know, music and philosophy and science and you know whatever else they have access to. Moses is privy to all this, but. But it's in this sort of these situations that have happened to Moses as a baby that it begins a uh, like a struggle of belonging for Moses. Because if you think about think about how Moses looks, okay. Inside, if you were to take a piece of Moses' hair and pull out like his genetic code and decode it and have a look at it, who is he? He's a, he's an Israelite. Exactly right. Internally, he's an Israelite. Yet externally, he looks like an Egyptian. So he's, you know, probably got like the black, you know, bob cut, all the makeup and whatever else on that the Egyptians were mad core into. 
wigs, I think. Didn't they shave their head? I'm not entirely sure. I should have done that research. Just scratch that bit, Lurky. Um, <laughs> I'll regret that later on. Anyway, um, but we know he looks like an Egyptian because the daughters of Jethro, his, his to-be, and I suppose in the future, father-in-law, they say that an Egyptian rescued them from the shepherds at the well. When, well this is after when, he, when he's run into the wilderness. They describe him as an Egyptian, so he obviously looked a lot like an Egyptian. So internally, his DNA says one story. Externally, his appearance says another story. Internally, he's this one identity. Externally, he's another. Like his blood relatives like live as slaves, yet his adopted family are royalty. Like his biological parents are oppressed and pushed down into the ground, but his adopted, his surrogate family are the actual oppressors. Like his, grand, his adopted grandfather is oppressing his blood parents. Like his, his birth nation worships one God, but his surrogate nation worships many. Right? He's sort of caught in this void, kind of, of where do I belong? He's got these two sides to his, to his world, to his identity. These are all circumstances outside of his control from when he's little. And no one can truly understand then the conflicting influences that are on his life. Like not his, not his brother Aaron, not the fellow princes in the royal court, not, neither of his mums. No one can relate to this exceptionally sort of um, conflicting element of his life. Moses, this man like set apart, he, he's, he's uniquely alone in this sort of vacuum between these two nations. And he takes flack from both sides. Okay? You look at this, Moses, uh, chapter 11, verse 2. Moses identifies with one camp, but that camp doesn't really, uh, really accept him. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. All right, So he's identified with the Hebrews here. He looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So Moses here sees himself as this Israelite, and he pummels the living out of this Egyptian because he's um, and, and, and buries this Egyptian in a shallow grave because he's sticking up for his tribe. But, verse 13, when, we, when he went out the next day, two Egyptians were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. Surely I've been found out. So while he's sticking up for this tribe that he identifies with, that tribe doesn't accept him. They see him as this sort of half-breed, like silver, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, sort of non-genuine authority over them, and they, they don't accept him. They don't respect him. So I just, yeah. And this middle... I think it's the cord here. Anyway, have fun with that, listeners. I hope you're not going to sleep to this. Plenty of people here are going to sleep for you. Anyway, this middle ground void here that Moses has found himself in, it's, it's lonely and it's 
directionless. Like no matter what action he takes, if he tries to sort things out himself or tries to fix things himself, blaze his own path, he just cops knocks between the slaves, between the enslaved. There's no place for him. He's just copying it from both sides. No one understands him. He's in this cavernous void between these two nations. What can he do? Where can he go? What does he do? He runs. He punches out. Far away from this problem into a foreign land. And here in this foreign land, the place of Midian, Moses enters this vastly different phase of his life. Okay? He's left behind his, his blood family. He's left behind his royalty. He's left behind... Um, like a murder investigation, he's left behind like a, a, a misplaced identity, he's, mis- he's left behind all these things. And for 40 years, he wanders around like an old pecker in the wilderness, in the dust, behind a herd of animals. And they're not even his animals, all right? They're his father-in-law's animals, so he's looking after somebody else's stuff. Like, he's just gone, wandering around outside in the wilderness. His wife, she initially thought he was an Egyptian, his couple of sons that he's got, they bear his Israeli DNA. Okay? So there's these two sides still kind of following him. Until, so these t- this tension between Israel and Egypt, they're a long way behind him. Like, it's, it's a long way. 40 years is a long time to forget about something like that. But they haven't really left him because he wanders, he wanders into, I love this place, this is such a cool name. He wanders into the mountain of God. That's cool. Maybe we should call Toowoomba the mountain of God. Not really. Tiff would probably argue that it wasn't big enough mountain. Hey, Tim. Foothill. Foothill. The foothill of God. Oh, anyway, what a place. Anyway, it's it's here in this Moses story that I want us, like here's Moses, and I want us to start meshing ourselves into and starting to relate to Moses here, okay? This is where we're going. You might be thinking, Ben, well, man, like it's, how how long are we in? Uh, Half an hour maybe, I don't know, a long time. We're into this place and you've, you've covered us, you've given us a whole lot of introduction of Moses, you've covered a whole lot of story, but you know, how the heck does this relate to me? Like where are you even going with this? Moses has got this, He's, he's three and a half thousand years ago. He's got this crazy exceptional life. Like, how does this relate to me at all? And that's exactly kind of like a great question because that's how I felt when I was trying to work out, what the heck do I do here? Early Moses life, what lessons do we get from that? And I struggled with this myself until I got to this part in the narrative, okay? Because it's here at this mountain of God place that Moses' situation and his place in between begins to make sense. So we're almost there, I promise. Let's read Exodus chapter 3, verses 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So God's there in obvious plain sight. 
Yet he doesn't speak to Moses until Moses determines for himself to turn towards God. And then, then in that, in that point there, in their dialogue and what God, what God does to Moses there is he sets his life alight with purpose and direction. All right, For him, going back into that really weird, uneasy void that he struggled with for so much of his life. Okay? Between those warring halves of his old world. Except this time, he's not reliant on his own direction setting. He's not reliant on picking his own little narrow path. He's not picking his own battles. He's not copying sort of empty, senseless cops from both sides. He's called to follow God. He's called to follow the God who sees all, who knows all, the God who is who he is. So Moses here, like he has now got a mission. He's now got this place of rightness to walk in amidst all the turmoil that's going to engulf him. Like think of it, he probably went through plenty of these, like a sandstorm, but he probably didn't have one of these, a compass. Okay, compass in a sandstorm. He can't see anything, even where his next foot's going but he knows the direction, okay? He's going to be engulfed, but he can just continue following this direction because he knows it's right. So he can go into this place and instead of being tossed around and caught up into the flow of traffic of one nation or another, he has this steady path where he can walk in the middle and be unhit, unaffected. Do you see my illustration coming back from the start? Flip back to that skating analogy, all right? That dangerous ground in the middle, he's so pro- yes, we were so prone to getting pulled into and destroyed by one lane of traffic or another. Moses is now on this refuge island, okay, safe. He's got barriers all around him. He's following God. He's following the Lord in this instance. And when he goes back, he still cops these knocks, all right? Like the replacement pharaoh hates him for trying to, you know, distract his slaves and take his slaves away. The slaves then hate him because of all the extra work that then Pharaoh gives him because of his interaction with Moses. And it goes backwards and forwards. He's still going to cop these things, but he's strengthened and he's purposeful in following and picking that narrow line between these two opposing forces because God is his point of focus and God is, is where he's following after. So, Christians... Here's our application. Where do we go from here? None of us, well, at least I don't think, have had a burning bush moment. No one's been walking around their garden and... Why isn't that disappearing? No? None of us have had that moment, have we? But God has revealed himself to us through the person of Jesus. Yeah? What's he doing? Come preach, sister friend. Um, we, God has revealed to us himself through the person of Jesus. Okay? We understand that? And in the person of Jesus, we've got this perfect example to walk in. We've got this perfect example to walk on. And we've got this perfect example to walk towards. Okay? Now... Where do we go wrong in that, though? We've, we've given such a perfect example. Why do we do it so terribly? Because often it becomes hard. 
and it affects too many uncomfortable emotions for us to actually um, walk the line between social and political issues in this world, doesn't it? it? It's hard. We get called names. We get yanked one way or another. It's hard. So we have, these are the two temptations that I could think of that we risk falling into. We have the temptation to either harden ourselves and double down and commit ourselves to one of these sides. We form an alliance with this side. Maybe it's like a conservative political party or it's with some other social justice organisation or whatever. You commit yourself entirely to that side and then you get you, you, you sort of tack that on to equal measure with your Christianity and then it's sort of as you grow around that, your Christianity takes this form of, of like a warpedness and you become too much of that one side or another. It affects you. It compromises your Christianity. That's one temptation. The other temptation that we we sometimes drawn into is of just ejecting, punching out of politics and society and everything altogether. And we've got our little, our little. Um, we ignore the world entirely around us. We've got our little, uh, like a little box of Christianity, and we open it, we sniff it on Sunday, and we put it back. All right? We compartmentalize our faith into this little thing, and it doesn't affect our lives at all, aside from when we choose to open that little box. So they're the two options that we can often find ourselves falling into. Now, maybe you can relate to one of those. Maybe you see yourself siding with a political party too unhealthily. Maybe you do just compartmentalise everything away. But tell me this, tell me this, Christians, Willowburn, brothers and sisters who, who are just struggling with this with me, which one of those views is what we're called to do in the Christian life. Which one of those views shows us as a Christian life, standing up on a hill, a big light set apart, blasting photons out to the world around us? Like, which one of those fits that picture that we're told? None. None of them do. A Christian life is, is, is not... In entirely about you know siding with an op- like a, a political party, and it's not about you know hiding away in a commune. It's following the policies of the kingdom of God. It's following Jesus' policies. Read the Sermon of the Mount like eight hundred times, and follow that. Okay, that's the, that's our policies that we as Christians should be living in every day. And when we follow this, this kingdom of Jesus, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, when we follow that, we're, we're always going to run against the grain of every sort of political party, every sort of social aspect or social political issue, whatever is in the world today that the world would want us to identify with and drag ourselves into and commit ourselves entirely to. We're always going to run against parts of that. We're always going to. So... I know that's a lot to think about. But through this example of Jesus, okay, the example of Jesus, this is God revealing himself to us, we can tread really steadily. We can tread surely on these, um, on the principles of the kingdom of God and we can be engaged in and we can walk steadily between these political parties. We can not get dragged into the undercurrents of one or another and end up in some sort of compromised situation somewhere. We can. So, 
Let's name some. We can, following the example of Jesus, we can stand against abortion and we can stand for all the rights of women and everything. And we can also stand with the rights for and the dignity of and provision for the immigrant boat person. Because we as Christians believe the unborn and the homeless refuge seeker person, okay, they're both made in the image of God. God loves both. Right? We can't get dragged out to sitting on one political party or over the other and ignoring one person and, and not the other or the other and whatever. And I don't know if any of you guys follow, like I probably, I don't want to advertise these guys, but some of the stuff that they say is pretty cluey. It's like a satirical website. It's called the Batuta Advocate. I'm not sure if any of you guys, anyway, you guys probably don't even know, but that's okay. Don't go looking it up. It's fine. But even they, they're a satirical website and they just call out political issues and inconsistencies and stuff. And even those guys, I noticed they had posted uh, a, a, a rip of us about this. Their headline was, anti-abortion protesters surprisingly not too interested in saving dying kids on Nauru. So when a political, like when a, when a satirical news website pulls that out, like, yeah, they're true. They're right. You know, like, what, why, why do we, why do we value one over the other? See what I mean? See what I'm trying to get here this morning? This, this middle ground idea? Both sides of the political fence are wrong. And walking behind our King Jesus, we can walk through this, like, this sex-soaked society that we live in. And, and we can condemn pornography and we can champion the rights and value of our sisters. We just can. It's the way. And, and following Jesus and, and holding him high, we can condemn the, the, the sex abuse that's happened in the, inverted commas, church and the ones that have happened in Hollywood. And we can cry with and support and nurture the victims of both, and we can hold on to what is good from both and ditch everything else, we can. We can call out, you know, political uh, politicians all over the political spectrum, including our favoured conservative ones, okay? Because none of these governments are really in line with the kingdom of God. We shouldn't blindly adhere ourselves to one or the other, but, but be consistent in the kingdom values brought out by Jesus and the Sermon of the Mount and calling both sides of the political fence or whatever, center, right, right, left, wherever, center, calling everyone out to a better way towards this kingdom of God. And man, just so it goes on and on. Like we can, we can walk a, a gentle, caring, loving, gracious line between, you know, the people who have who misunderstand a right sexual ethic, you know, whether it's, you know, premarital sex, whether it's gay sex, whether it's, you know, pornography, whether it's adulterous affairs, you know, whatever it is, we can walk a line and help people through all of that. But this is where I want us to get to, though. But um, I know in all of us, welling up now, because in me when I was struggling through this and trying to understand this, Understanding that we're standing on a right way or we've got a right way is also a grounds for pride and piety to build up in our lives. 
So I don't want us to sit and think, yeah, we've got the right way. We've got the middle ground. We're the best. Yeah. And we're, we're high-fiving ourselves. No, because we've got to, first, we've got to openly own our own sins first, okay? And we've got to humbly come and, and just show ourselves that we are only here because of what we talked about this morning, Noel, you know, the grace of God through faith alone. Like, that is the only reason we're here. We're not righteous in, in standing in this little line or anything like that. The only reason we're here is because God has presented himself to us in the person of Jesus. And so we as Christians, we believe that our own sin is a massive plank that needs to de- be dealt with first before the sins of anybody else who is a tiny speck. So we don't go criticizing or condemning anybody until we first understood and dealt with ourselves. And, and we, can't, we can't go out into the world and, and like sort of pick and choose between what is acceptable sins to be in a church and what's unacceptable sins to be in someone's life before they step foot in a church. Like we can't be like that. That's not the way we're meant to be. We've all fallen short. We all have. So we've got to acknowledge our shortcomings like this Moses guy did when it comes to being called by God and following in his way in our society, okay? This, what we've talked about, this is this sure-footed middle ground that God called Moses into and we are also called into to experience, okay, when we anchor, when we anchor our view to the example set before us of who? Our Lord and Saviour and King Jesus Christ. Amen?